Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Sometimes it takes decades to solve a cold case. And sometimes, even when a case seems solved on the surface, it remains cold in the eyes of the law. On October 28, 1970, a woman was brutally beaten to death in her Texas home. And with her death came a pursuit for her killer that, depending on who you believe, may already be dead. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Beverly Jean Hope was the perfect example of Southern charm. With a beauty that could turn heads and grace that matched it, Beverly met her perfect match while at a church function in her hometown of Oklahoma City and, shortly after graduation, married Grover Hope and moved themselves into a little starter home in Texas, where they spent the next 17 years in complete wedded bliss. Eventually, Grover scraped up enough money to start his own flourishing business, which did so well, Beverly was able to not only move into her dream home, but fill it with the finest furnishings. After selling their old house and some land they invested in, the hopes were well on their way to upper-middle-class status. While they waited for their new home, Beverly and Grover lived in their secluded little house in far north Dallas, a house that was 125 yards off the main road. It was in this house that, on October 28, 1970, after the neighbor came to pick up their three children to carpool to school, Grover kissed his wife goodbye and started his five-minute commute to his contracting business just before eight in the morning. Little did he know that this was the last time he saw his picture-perfect wife alive again. For the next two or so hours, Beverly worked to straighten up the house, before dressing for a lunch date with her neighbor and best friend, a friend whom she'd become extremely close to following the woman's attempted rape just 14 months before. 
Beverly was one of the few people this woman had confided in, and that trust cemented their friendship. As she finished up a bath and dressed for her lunch, the 36-year-old paused briefly to answer the phone and chat with her twin sister for rushing her off the phone. Not long after, two workmen approached her door to ask for some water in their jug. This was far from the first time that these men, who were at a work site nearby, had come asking for water. And though it irritated Beverly, she always obliged, which is why they found it very strange when she didn't answer the door for them. With no answer, and the only sign of life being the family dog tethered to a chain nearby, the men assumed she was either busy or had simply stepped out, and they left without their water. Then, Beverly's lunch date called the house and received no answer. Worried, she waited for a bit, but after 11.30 a.m., decided to call Grover just in case. Grover, who agreed this was out of character for his wife, noted the fear in her friend's voice and decided to make the short trip home to check on the house. When he drove up, he noticed that Beverly's car was still sitting in the garage. With a sense of worry growing inside of him, Grover entered the house and called out to his wife. No answer. Noting a long piece of firewood leaning up against the fireplace, he grabbed the wood and readied himself for a potential intruder. Entering the bedroom, he let out a sigh of relief. There on the bed were two purses, something his wife had a habit of doing when she was switching out handbags to match her outfit for the day. With a new sense of calm, he turned to walk out of the bedroom and saw that his son's room was shut tight. When he looked inside, he saw Beverly Jean Hope lying in a pool of blood near her son's closet. She had been beaten beyond the point of recognition. Rushing to the kitchen, Grover made a call to 911 at 12.02 p.m. Upon closer examination, investigators at the scene found underwear and shoes thrown around the room, splotches of blood near the door, aquarium, and telephone, which was yanked from the wall, and two bloody footprints. One was about 11 and a half inches long. From what they could determine, that very same log Grover had picked up to defend himself from home invasion was the log that beat his wife to death. Unfortunately, because the murder weapon was a rough log, there was no way to pull the necessary prints for examination. Nothing seemed to be taken from the home. Valuables still sitting where they belonged. Beverly wasn't raped, though they couldn't rule out sexual assault. And she didn't seem to have an enemy in the world. From all of that rose a very important question. What motive could someone possibly have for targeting the secluded home of Beverly and Grover Hope? And why Beverly? With no motive, no suspects, and a pretty useless murder weapon and no witnesses, Beverly's case started to chill pretty quickly. All they knew from the injuries present on her body was that Beverly fought back to the point of fracturing her hands and her fingers, but the skin cells found under her fingernails were actually her own. A few days later, the Hope family tearfully laid their matriarch to rest as members of the community showed up in droves to mourn the loss of such a wonderful life. It was at this funeral home that police got their first break. When Grover went to collect his wife's property from the funeral home, he noticed that her wedding band was missing. Combing through things a little bit more diligently in their house, police found that a few other pieces, as well as some cameras, were actually missing from the scene. The police asked the press to keep this tidbit private, as it gave a possible motive, though a small one, for the gruesome crime and waited patiently in hopes the killer would pawn his new items. 
While they waited, the case was handed to two homicide detectives, Chuck Doherty and Gus Rose, both seasoned enough to be involved in JFK's investigation, with Chuck himself riding with Lee Harvey Oswald to the hospital after he was shot by Jack Ruby, and Gus being one of the only officers to interrogate Oswald and one of the first to interview his wife. Basically, they were exactly who you would want in your increasingly cold case. Working with about a million questions, the detectives started questioning everyone who knew Beverly Hope, as well as every known burglar and sex criminal in the area. Every single person checked out, and each lead came to a sudden dead end. With a burglary motive never far from their mind, the investigators started to work the case from the angle that it was, maybe, a grudge killing. But everyone who knew her insisted Beverly was as clean as you could get. So, they checked out Grover, especially when they realized he worked just five minutes from his home. But even when looking at him with a fine-toothed comb, Grover could account for every single minute he spent away from his wife. Soon, Beverly's case not only had two detectives who were unwilling to relent, but a widower who called the station almost every single day for the next five years, demanding information about his wife's case, putting up a reward that would eventually reach $25,000, placing ads in the papers, and hiring a private detective of his own. Grover spent each day wishing and hoping someone would come forward, but no one did. And he was forced to move on with his life, moving his kids into the new home and remarrying a woman who understood his dogged pursuit for his wife's killer. Meanwhile, Chuck and Gus persisted as well. Suspects came and went like a man who shot four deputies in February of 1971 after committing a string of North Dallas burglaries. The milkman who left early on that particular day or local junkies who were known to break into homes to get money for their next fix. None panned out. So they started looking into a new lead and after extensive interviews with the workers in the area, found out that a white 61 Chevy had been parked near a temporary gate a short distance from the Hope home. Thinking maybe this car was a getaway vehicle, Chuck and Gus worked to try and locate it or its driver. Going down the rabbit hole, the detectives soon learned the plates on the car had been stolen, but an informant told Chuck that a man called Old Bo had stolen the plates. Every single officer in the area knew who Old Bo was. Bo was a professional burglar who spent his entire life living off of what he could steal. A man with an arrest record about a mile long, who was at large after outwitting law enforcement for about the hundredth time. If Beverly's murder was a product of burglary, then Bo seemed to be the perfect suspect. He was a professional, known to carry out a pretty spotless job that left very little in the way of evidence. So they started to look for him, and after a bit, he got himself arrested while trying to steal from a Longview DA's office. Seizing a rare opportunity, Chuck Doherty went to question Bo. When he mentioned a real bad burglary in North Dallas, Bo, without blinking, responded, I didn't kill that woman. Intrigued, Chuck pressed on and got the name of a man that Bo said committed the murder. Unfortunately, the lead hit a major dead end and Bo dropped off the face of the earth. Then, time passed and he ended up in the hands of law enforcement yet again. And yet again, Chuck went to talk to him about the case. Bo was given three different polygraph tests. 
two of which were inconclusive, and while they prepared for the third, Bo tried to pick a lock in the interrogation room with the spring he took from the bottom of his chair. With a new index for measuring his truthfulness, the examiner asked Bo, did you just try to escape from the interrogation room? Bo responded with a cold no, and the needle stayed completely still. He was a pathological liar who could beat a polygraph test. With nothing officially connecting him to the case, they were forced to let Bo go. After well over 100 suspects, all of which were carefully looked into, and three years of work, the case came to an abrupt halt. Chuck Doherty died in 2002, Gus Rose in 2009, and the last Grover Hope heard, the police had lost Beverly's case files. In 2015, when all hope seemed to be lost, Grover, who by this point was in his 90s, got a call from a woman who left a voicemail saying, if this is Grover Hope, who was married to Jean Hope, please call me. So, of course, he did. The woman on the other line was Angela Hans, who told him plainly, Mr. Hope, I know who murdered your wife, and proceeded to give him the name of her older brother, Everett Dwayne Pointer, a man whom Grover recognized because, for a time, he had been related to him. While having dinner with her ex-sister-in-law back in 1978, Angela found out that June, who had been married to her older brother prior to a pretty nasty divorce, had a twin sister who had been tragically killed about eight years before. Beverly Jean Hope. June invited Angela to spend the night at her condo, and while there, she gave her a copy of a D Magazine story from 1995 titled, Who Killed Beverly Jean Hope? When Angela went back to Oklahoma City after her visit, she started to read the article. And the more she read, the more she thought, and the more she started to realize that her brother was actually the killer, June's ex-husband. So she wrote a letter to the magazine saying, I know someone who had a motive, a maniacal cunning, a hair trigger, vicious temper, and had easy access to Mrs. Hope. I am 100% certain that my older brother, Everett Dwayne Pointer committed this horrendous crime. Everett was seven years older than Angela and, according to his sister, had always been a troubled boy. Police showed up constantly and she even remembered him robbing a rich man at gunpoint when he was just a teenager, her father throwing the gun into the river to save his son. She remembered horrible rumors about her brother, one of which included him killing a man while he was in the Air Force, and very clearly remembers seeing bruises on the body of the woman he married after June, him destroying their house at the slightest disagreement, and breaking furniture out of anger. As far as she knew, Everett never had a job, but always seemed to have money whenever he wanted it. And in 1970, the year of the murder, she remembers he and his second wife moving to Oklahoma where he was trying to raise money to start a business that used small planes and infrared cameras to search for oil and gas deposits. That's around the time that June filed a suit against him for 18 years of back child support and sent Everett into a complete furious spiral. After relaying all of this information to Grover, whom she had never met during their brief time being related by marriage, Angela theorized that Everett came to Dallas and killed Beverly Jean to intimidate her twin sister, knowing he couldn't kill his ex-wife because he would be the first person police would suspect. Either that or, knowing the Hopes had money, he came to ask for a payout and Beverly told him no. 
A few weeks after the murder, Everett came to Colorado where Angela was living. She said it seemed as though he was running from something and claimed he was worried that the police were looking for him. She assumed at the time it was about the child support or the business. He was so worried, he ended up in an abandoned shack with no electricity or running water. She also confirmed that when he showed up, he was driving an old white Chevy, just like the one seen near the crime scene. She knew what he was capable of. He had sexually molested her since she was a toddler, and she witnessed his violence with many others. She knew he was more than capable of beating Beverly Hope to death. He spent the next few years in and out of her life, in and out of psychiatric wards, and after a particularly bad fight, she started to search for Grover's phone number. Though her theory sounds plausible and Angela admitted to feeling unburdened by her confession, Grover and his children decided not to take her theory to the police. Everett was dead, and with nothing to substantiate her claims, Grover has decided to keep her story to himself. He does, however, admit that Everett was a terrible man and an even worse husband to his sister-in-law. Calls and theories come into Grover from time to time, but in his old age, he is simply tired of being put through all of this pain all over again. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on October 29th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.